Reagan White Salusi didn't know if she would find what she was looking for. She and her husband were walking along the top of a mesa in northwest New Mexico. All they had to go off of was a faint memory her husband had from when he was a kid. Growing up, his family had a ranch near Zuni Pueblo. He was riding his horse up at their cattle ranch, and he was just kind of exploring the area, and he came across this walkway entrance down off of the top of the mesa. Reagan's husband was curious. He followed the crevice down, on foot, stepping carefully on a path into the mouth of a canyon hidden under the edge of the mesa. He couldn't believe what he saw, a secret orchard. It was full of peach trees. When he went down there, they were actually blooming at the time. Their branches were covered in small violet and pink flowers. There was maybe about like 40 trees. But these weren't like other peach trees. The trees were round and bushy, like a shrub. Their bark worn smooth by the wind and the sand blowing in the canyon. These were southwest peaches. The peaches are white-fleshed. They are very small, like an apricot. I would say it's very sweet, it's juicy. I kind of would say that they taste almost like a muskmelon flavor. The Southwest peach is hard to find these days, but there is a long history of Native people farming peaches in this region. The Zuni and Hopi had orchards. So did Reagan's ancestors, the Diné. We didn't just have corn beans and squash. We had a lot of fruit crops as well. There's peaches, there's apricots, there's wild plums. There's just an abundance of, of different food crops that we actually utilized in our diet that aren't recognized. When Reagan and her husband were searching for the lost orchard, she was a master's student at Utah State University. She was studying the history and genetics of the peach. Her goal was to find the few wild trees left and rekindle interest in the fruit. She hoped the Southwest peach could one day find its way back into native kitchens. But that day on the mesa, finding the orchard seemed like a long shot. So we went, and I actually had two of my advisors with me at the time, and we just kept walking back and forth along the mesa cliff trying to find the one way down into that area where the orchard was. Hours passed. We were looking, and we kept walking, and then I hear my husband say, I found it! The stone pathway was rugged. It had been washed out years ago, but it was still there. And so we went, and we walked down, and there was only two trees left from what he remembered when he was eight. The excitement that I felt was just overbearing that, you know, this this is almost a pathway that I feel like has been divinely guided. The Southwest peach isn't the only indigenous food disappearing. Native foodways of hunting, fishing, gathering, and farming have been under threat since the arrival of Europeans forced relocations, and later, highly processed foods fundamentally reshaped the diet of many indigenous people. The impact is real. Declines in native farming and ranching have contributed to more sedentary lifestyles, and a lack of access to fresh, healthy foods all contribute to obesity and other food-related health issues. By contrast, the peach tells a story of resilience. There may only have been a few trees left in that orchard, but they were still standing. So it's almost just a way of saying, you know, we're still here as a people. Despite everything that's occurred, we are still here. In this episode, we're going to hear how colonization transformed Native foodways in the United States. We were seen as the enemy 
And so we were fed like prisoners of war. And how Reagan and others are reclaiming their food traditions to improve the health of their communities. It's not just about the peaches, it's about restoring the people, restoring the memory, restoring the family connections that have been lost. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder, and this is American Diagnosis. Reagan White Salusi, the Diné native foods expert, is from Gallup, New Mexico. It's just outside the Navajo Nation. My clans are Nakai Diné, which is the Mexican clan, and I was born for Sanchequitni, which is the honeycomb uh, clan people or cliff dwelling people. My paternal grandfather on my mother's side is Biligana, or in other terms, white or Anglo. And then my paternal grandfather on my father's side is from the Totochitni clan, which is one of the four first clans of the Navajo people. And it's a bitter water clan. Reagan's father is Roy Talker. My name is Roy Talker, and I was born for Kinsuchitni, for Senjakini, and Nasteja. Uh, they're my grandfather on my mom's side, and with the Chitney is on my dad's side. In translation, is that uh, I was born as a red house, born for the Black Street people or the Honeycomb people. My uh, mom's side were uh, Zuni Edgewater, and my dad's side is the the Bitterwater clan. Roy grew up on the Navajo Nation. He remembers hunting rabbits and eating foods like squash, corn, beans, and the Southwest peach. When I was growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of sweets, and so it was like a a treat to us. At six years old, Roy remembers sneaking down into the canyons to pick the fruit off the trees. We would get in trouble for it, but uh, hey, it was nice to have a pocket full of either apples, uh, peaches, plums, or, you know, stuff like that in your pocket so you can munch on it. The peaches were eaten fresh or boiled. If there was a big harvest, they would preserve the peaches by drying them in the sun. They would uh, take a couple of handfuls and put it in water, rehydrate it, cook it, and that's the way we ate it. Roy traces their family's connection to the peach back to the 1860s, a time when the very existence of the Diné people was under threat. In the 1860s, the U.S. military was at war with the Diné and other tribes in the region. The U.S. military intentionally targeted their food sources. It was a scorched earth campaign. So all of their annual crops, their vegetable plants, everything that they had, their livestock, a lot of it was getting slaughtered, and among that was also the fruit orchards in Canyon de Chez. Canyon de Chez was a Diné stronghold, but it was also the breadbasket of the region. If the U.S. military could decimate the area, they could force the Diné and other tribes to surrender. They say that there were over thousands of peach trees down in there. According to a first-person account of the attack by a U.S. captain, more than 4,000 trees were destroyed. Many were forced to flee. A Diné headman named Hushki led a group north near Navajo Mountain, Utah. There are stories based on him where uh, people say that He was actually the one that planted the orchard uh, down in the canyon. Roy and Reagan traced their roots and their connection to the peach back to Hushki. They were able to escape and go up to the top and then come back down at the night and get their food supply 
to continue to hide out and harvest fruit off the trees. Many did not escape. With food supplies decimated, many Diné had no choice but to surrender. They were rounded up and force-marched some 400 miles in the middle of winter to Fort Sumner, New Mexico. They and other indigenous people were held at an internment camp at Basque Redondo. It was known as the Long Walk. Conditions were brutal at Basque Redondo. Cut off from their crops and livestock, malnutrition and starvation were constant threats. Dinant leaders signed the Treaty of Basque Redondo with the U.S. government in 1868. The treaty ended open war between the two groups, but the price was high. During four years of internment at Basque Redondo, some 2,500 Diné, Mescalero Apache, and other indigenous people held there died. Part of the treaty allowed the Diné to return to their homeland. It established the reservation that became the Navajo Nation. But the home they returned to would not be as they left it. The Diné would replant their corn, grow their flocks of sheep, tend to the peaches, but those years of internment altered their diets as well. And then, you know, as part of that process, those things carried forward into this transitional diet that was really bad for Indigenous peoples. This is Martin Reinhardt. My name is Dr. Martin Reinhardt, and I'm a professor of Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University. I am Anishinaabe Ojibwe, a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians here in Michigan. The U.S. military's attacks on Diné foodways were not unique. They would kill the buffalo. They would make it hard for us to find our fish or to access the fish. They would destroy our wild rice fields. They would cut down the maple trees. The Diné were able to negotiate the return to their homeland, but many tribes could not. They would remove indigenous peoples from their traditional homelands, put them on reservations that were essentially like prisons. And then if they were lucky enough to be fed, the federal government would provide usually things that have had a really ill effect on us. Things like flour, white sugar, salt, and lard. The original idea was that they would give us the scraps, you know, the um, bulk food scraps from the military. We were seen as the enemy. And so we were fed like prisoners of war. Tribes that were able to negotiate treaties with the U.S. government often included provisions guaranteeing food rations. These treaty obligations from the 1800s have a legacy that reaches all the way to the 1970s. The Food Stamp Act of 1977 established the current system of food support to Native people. Bulk foods like canned meat and vegetables and other mostly processed foods were distributed to participating tribes. These were known as commodity foods. Martin remembers eating meals made with commodity foods, or commods, as a kid. You know, commodity day was an exciting day. We'd go get these boxes of food, and you know, on the day you got commods, you had more choice. And we would make foods that we weren't able to make since last month. One of the first commodity food items to go, he says, was the commodity cheese. A lot of people jokingly call it Indian gold. It's just uh, the best macaroni and cheese you've ever had in your life, the best grilled cheese you've ever had in your life, the best bologna and cheese sandwiches you've ever had in your life. Martin was less wild about other things in the commods box. We had mystery meat. 
So the mystery meat was kind of like spam, and it was just said meat on the can. Sometimes you got canned chicken or canned pork or canned uh, beef, but you know you never knew what it was when it was just meat, right? <laughs> so was, but you know, yeah, we found ways to make it taste good. For some, commodity food represents a conflicted history, one of pain, but also perseverance. It was food that kept us alive, and I don't know how healthy we were. Probably not as healthy as we could have been, but we did what we had to do to stay alive and to make it taste good. Since Martin was a kid, there have been improvements to the commodity food program. In 1996, a USDA program started to introduce more fresh fruits and vegetables. Processed items became available in reduced fat and reduced sodium versions. And no more mystery meat. Canned meats were replaced with higher quality frozen options. The diversity of foods improved too. In 2006, Congress approved funds to include foods that were more culturally relevant. Now, traditional foods like bison and blue corn are available. That's really good to see, but they have a long way to go. Despite these improvements, many tribal citizens struggle to access grocery stores or other sources of healthy foods. Besides commodity foods, the introduction of fast food to reservations has also played a major role in the health of Native communities. Here's Roy Talker again. With McDonald's and stuff, back then, that was our food. I know some people that eat their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know. Roy left the Navajo Nation when he was still a boy. He was sent to live with a Mormon family in Snowflake, Arizona. But he never forgot about the peach. He thought about studying agronomy when he graduated high school, but he never did. Instead, I went into a a restaurant business. Roy became a McDonald's franchise owner. When I got into McDonald's, I did it mainly for the money, and I was making an investment. Part of Roy's work with McDonald's was expanding the franchise's reach on the Navajo Nation. That work provided a good life for Roy's family, including his daughter, Reagan. But Roy feels conflicted about that now. I did that not realizing what kind of damage that I would do to my own people. I was only thinking about myself. Later on, I found out that diabetes was actually increasing on the reservation. And I'm looking back and I go, I think I helped produce that. Diabetes has been on the rise since Roy was a child. Since the 1970s, diabetes for American Indians and Alaska Natives is up over 30%. Today, it is the most common chronic health issue for Indigenous people. And that includes Roy. I've been living with type 2 diabetes for the last 30 years. Here's Martin Reinhardt again. It's been a real big concern of ours is how our people have been impacted by the uh, change in diet. It creates uh, bad health conditions in our communities, rampant obesity, heart disease, diabetes. And so that really has killed us. The 19th century treaties between tribes and the U.S. government helped make commodity food a staple in native kitchens. But they often included another provision, the right to hunt, fish, and gather. Martin grew up eating commodity foods, but he also grew up fishing and gathering local food with his family. When we return, we'll hear how Martin took control of his own diet and how Reagan and Roy are helping rejuvenate the Southwest peach. That's after the break. 
Martin grew up in the eastern end of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just outside Sault Ste. Marie. There's an island over there called Sugar Island. I always think of that as kind of our island. And that's where my uh, grandmother was raised and where she would take us in the summers. Martin's grandmother knew her way around the kitchen. Oh my gosh, could she cook? And she helped introduce Martin to indigenous foods as a kid. So she would take us gathering berries. We'd go out fishing. Spearfishing is an important part of the native foodways on the Great Lakes. One of the stories that I uh, tell my students is about my brother and I were out spearing with my uncles one night near Sugar Island. At the time, Martin says it was common for the U.S. Coast Guard to hassle native people when they would fish in the waters. From our perspective, we were just doing what we'd always done, and we knew it was our treaty rights, but it wasn't recognized by the feds. Some Anishinaabe gave up traditional fishing as a result. Others refused to purchase fishing licenses. It's very difficult for us to stomach that idea, to, you know, actually go out and get a state license. It was like turning your back on your culture. I think it was a point of pride, and it was a point of standing up for your sovereignty. So people often would, they would go out there and they would not get a hunting license, and then they would get caught, and they might have to do some jail time. Despite these risks, Martin's family continued to spearfish. We were the little guys, and our uncles, you know, they would hold the light, steer the boat, or spear the fish. And uh, our job was to keep an eye out for the Coast Guard. If they saw the Coast Guard, they would throw their equipment into the water. When they thought the coast was clear, it was Martin's job to fish it out again. And I'll tell you what, it was a scary thing. Those waters are pretty dark, and when you're little, it's pretty deep. And, you know, you're feeling around with your feet on the bottom of the, the water. So anyway, that was a, a pretty, uh, pretty cool time in my life to be part of that. So when you came home with a boatload of fish, what did you do with all that fish when you got back? We would bring them to my grandmother's house after we cleaned them and she would prepare them and we would eat them that day. We would also share them. We knew that other people might need food and so if we had enough, we would distribute it. Sometimes it was just enough for a meal, but you know, if we had an abundance, then we shared. It's been nearly 20 years since Martin has gone spearfishing, but he led a project that tried to find ways indigenous people can reconnect with the foodways that have been lost. Yeah, the decolonizing diet project The university where Martin works hosted events serving indigenous foods as a way to start conversations between native and non-native students. It was called the First Nations Food Taster. And in 2010, we had our First Nations Food Taster. And as we were in the kitchen preparing the food, the thought occurred to me, would my ancestors, who are Anishinaabe Ojibwe, would they recognize the foods that we now think of as indigenous, as something that they were familiar with. It actually turned itself around, the question. And I asked if I wanted to eat the foods my ancestors ate today, uh, what would I have to know and do? So what does it mean to have your diet be colonized? Well, that's a great question. What we really mean uh, when we say decolonizing is that we move toward a point in time uh, when the original acts, uh, these negative interactions occurred, the colonization, the oppression of indigenous peoples and cultures. And we figure out, well, what happened and how can we move toward healing that? And once we've healed that, uh, how do we protect it? 
Martin and a group of other volunteers decided that they would spend a year eating like their ancestors in the Great Lakes region. They came up with three rules to guide their diet. First, the foods had to come from the Great Lakes water basin. So the tributaries, the streams, the rivers, the lakes that comprise the Great Lakes region. The second was when the foods arrived in the region. Some were introduced by indigenous people. Corn, for example, isn't native to the Great Lakes. Indigenous people brought it there. But Martin included it because it was common before the arrival of Europeans. Other foods had always been there. So an example might be a uh, mallard duck. Mallard ducks were here on their own accord, regardless of human interaction or not. And the uh, third category that we do not include is anything that is considered a genetically modified organism or GMOs. And so that was our food criteria. There were 25 participants in the study, including Martin. They asked each participant to make sure at least 25% of their daily diet was made up of indigenous foods. They also asked them to increase their physical activity. Because as Americans in modern day society, we are so lethargic and we just, you know, we just don't do the kind of physical activity that our ancestors have. Martin went all in, 100%. He didn't eat anything that wasn't on the indigenous diet they developed. Some of the most common foods that we consumed were wild rice, corn, maple products, sunflower, pumpkin, squash, berries, wild leeks. I ate so many leeks during that year that the mosquitoes were leaving me alone, and so was my wife. Anything for science, right? I'm just kidding, by the way. She didn't. She couldn't leave me alone. <laughs> they also ate a lot of beans, venison, bison, and local fish. And there were definitely a few items most people in the U.S. would not find on their dinner plate. Like beaver, uh, grasshoppers, uh, white pine bark, crab apples. Crab apple sauce is one of the best things on the face of the earth, by the way. Uh, squirrel, porcupine. After a year, Martin checked in with the participants. The results of the decolonizing diet project were really cool. So on a biological level, based on statistical analysis of our group data, we were able to report that the research participants experienced significant reductions in weight and significant reductions in girth and BMI. That's body mass index. It's a measure of body fat based on someone's height and weight. So some of the outcomes were noteworthy, but not statistically significant. But we'd had individual level reductions in blood pressure, reductions in cholesterol, and reductions in blood glucose levels. In the years since the study, Martin hasn't kept a strict indigenous food diet. But we have made significant changes to our diet, my wife and I. And so on a daily basis, we try to average at least 25% in our diet of indigenous foods. So it's a process. It's not going from one extreme to the other, but just uh, the process of trying to make ourselves healthier. That healing goes beyond just dietary health. For Martin, gathering wild foods, the same foods his ancestors gathered, helps him connect with his Anishinaabe Ojibwe roots. So you get out in the woods and you're, you know, breathing that fresh air and the sun shining and you're walking through and it's still kind of crisp out, but, you know, you can just feel the uh, life coming up all around you and you see all the leaks and the uh, sister plants are out there. And then we're also hearing the sounds. 
the winds rustling the leaves and the birds come down, they flap their wings. All these things that just uh, creates this opportunity for us to be who we are as indigenous people in relationship to our surroundings. Back in New Mexico, after Reagan White Salusi found the lost orchard in Zuni Pueblo, she spoke to elders there about the peaches. The oldest elder that I interviewed, she said that the trees were already growing there and they never once planted a new tree. And so in the case that these trees are still in existence and this elder that I spoke with in Zuni, she was 92 years old at the time. For the village, the peach trees had always been there. These trees are still productive today. They could be in the ground for 80 years, maybe even longer, and they're still having massive amounts of fruit being produced off of them. Speaking with those elders, Reagan started to think about the fruit in a new way. There was a different ethos to how the trees were cared for. Conventional approaches to peach cultivation seek to maximize the size of the fruit and ease of harvest by pruning new branches. But the Zuni she spoke with did not thin out their trees. Thinning is recognized as a cultural no-no because you are ending a life at the start of, of its success. And so instead of encouraging it and nurturing it, if you're starting to thin off the fruit, you're actually, you know, reducing the life of that tree and its prodigy at the same time. This was a new approach from what she had learned at the university. The more she learned about these indigenous approaches to farming, she became more interested in her own roots. I probably wasn't exposed to any Navajo culture until I was about 15. As an adult, her research into the Southwest Peach has provided her a way to connect with her Diné identity. Knowing your culture, knowing your history, knowing who you are, makes you a real Diné. Reagan's dad, Roy Talker. I think that was deep down in her, and that's where that desire, wanting to achieve something and, and really help her people, because she's realized that she is Diné. As she traveled around the Four Corners, Reagan met many elders. They would lose track of time talking. We stayed up and we talked, you know, almost to midnight just through an interview and had a lot of conversation and dialogue that had taken place, not just about the peaches, but about like the star patterns and all of these different things that we don't talk about anymore in our time. Reagan traveled with her father. Because Reagan doesn't speak Navajo fluently, she relied on her father to translate. The time they spent together interviewing elders and searching for orchards showed her a new side of him. And as we've gone through this together, it's it's been very impressive to see him recall not just memories of his childhood, but but even like how he would catch a rabbit and pull it out of its rabbit hole. Memories like that, all of these traditional ways of how they were able to do that and able to survive naturally off of what was available to them is just, my mind just keeps wanting to find more. And there might start to be some signs of change. As caretakers of the orchards passed away and diets changed, many peach trees were lost. Some of the things that we say is when the plants feel like nobody's there asking them and caring for them to help them be productive, they themselves, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, will start to die off. 
Reagan's research has inspired some Native communities to care for the trees again. And they say, you know, because because of you, we are starting to go up and take care of those trees again. This is a healthier food source for us. We want to, to bring it back and have it a part of our, our life again. She hopes that her work to revitalize the Southwest peach can be a source of pride for younger people. Whether they desire to want to grow the food or not, it's just giving them a piece of who they are and giving it back to them. That piece of us that that connects us to the land, connects us to our Heavenly Father, connects us to who we are in our families, in our own communities, and continues to sustain us today. This is our fruit, you know? This is our tree. This season of American Diagnosis is a co-production of Kaiser Health News and Just Human Productions. Additional support provided by the Burroughs Welcome Fund and Open Society Foundations. This episode of American Diagnosis was produced by Zach Dyer, Adriana Rodriguez, and me. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Our editorial advisory board includes Jordan Bennett Begay, Alistair Bitsoy, and Brian Pollard. Tanya English is our managing editor. Una Tempest does the original illustrations for each of our episodes. Our interns are Brian Chen, Julie Levy, Sophie Varma, and Maji Kadri. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. If you're enjoying this show, check out Season 1 of the Where It Hurts podcast. It's a story about what happens after a small town hospital packs up and leaves. Locals lost health care. Health workers lost jobs. The hole left behind was bigger than a hospital. Where It Hurts takes you to an often overlooked part of the country where people are making do despite painful cracks in the health system. Follow Just Human Productions on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. And follow Kaiser Health News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our newsletters at khn.org so you never miss what's new and important in American healthcare, health policy, and public health news. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis. Mm-hmm.